Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Micah Fran, a crypto and NFT obsessed CPA and the founder of Frame, Collie and Company CPAs. Micah, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm really psyched. Everyone always pretty much is talking about taxes, right? Because we all buy and sell assets here in crypto. And obviously, it's probably kind of considered a nightmare because most tax software doesn't cover this and it's not all done for you. So today, we're obviously going to hit on the different way things are taxed. And you know, there's also different viewpoints. And obviously, there may be some stuff that are not clear yet from the tax authorities of which direction to go. But uh, you know, why don't you leave off our audience with a little bit about yourself and what you guys are doing over there? Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, my name is Mike Frame. We've got the site, CryptoTaxCPA.com. So I've been in online businesses and growth-centric businesses. That's been our niche for the past decade or so. And a combination of having very sort of tech-centric clients who are more inclined to be adopting crypto themselves. And then I got a little, bought a little bit of crypto in 2017, but really got into it in the beginning of 2021 as an investor and sort of as a hobby. And the more and more that I was digging into the space just for my clients and for myself, the more and more I realized there was no guidance out there for tax stuff. Because most things, you know, you had tax reform in 2018 and you have some big changes occasionally, but so much of this stuff is an established case law that's been around for 50, 100 years or something. So whenever you're looking for most topics, there's this expansive amount of case law and legislation that's behind it that you can reference. That's not the case at all with crypto. I list this off every time, so I should be better at actually remembering the things, but I think there's five things total that the IRS has issued like very explicit guidance on. And that's that coin for coin trades are taxable, that you can't do 1031 like kind exchanges with crypto, that hard forks and airdrops are taxable, that mining income is business income, and then that you don't need to do an FBAR filing right now for crypto. And I think that's it. There might be one or two other ones, but that's all there is. So when we're talking about staking, NFTs, liquidity pools, all this stuff that we're dealing with all the time now, there's nothing out there, which is a real challenge, but also part of what attracted me to the space is that it's such an emergent market. Out of what you just mentioned, let's break down even just a few of those things, right? You got the F-bar. People probably might not even have heard of it before or don't yeah. even know to comply because, you know, crypto may or may not be held who knows where, right? Right. So why don't you break down what that is and what the uh, obligations typically would be? Yeah, so for F-bar filings, that's foreign bank account reporting, I think is what it stands for. And the numbers change, but right now it's about $10,000. If you hold assets in a foreign bank account and it reaches $10,000 at any point during the year, then you're required to do this FBAR filing, which isn't a huge deal. It's just a compliance thing to say, hey, I've got this money in this bank account or in this overseas whatever. And you're telling the US government about it. And through that disclosure, you're showing that you're not trying to offshore your money for tax avoidance. So the question came up and a few people asked the IRS, is crypto, because you're holding in these decentralized wallets, these global exchanges, is that considered a foreign bank account? 
And the guidance that we've gotten so far is that the IRS has said, no, it's not required right now, but they've petitioned to have it included under that same umbrella. So it's just sort of a long list of new regulations that are coming down the pipeline that right now we've been a little bit spoiled that we haven't had to do it. But the IRS and the SEC are very clearly trying to close. Some of them are loopholes and some of them are just things that are poorly defined right now, but they're more and more trying to bring this stuff under their sort of authoritative umbrella. I believe uh, a few years ago on the uh, next one, the 1031 exchange, right? I believe a few years ago, people were attempting to do that initially with some of the crypto stuff or the grayscale private placement offering. And then did they stop the 1031 or kind of what happened? There's two things that happened. It's kind of interesting. So first off, it was undefined up until 2018. So when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Trump tax revision that they did in 2018, when they did that, that was in 2018. So it was right after the ICO creation. There was this huge interest in crypto. So they said very explicitly, just very plainly, you can only do 1031 exchanges on real assets. So real estate equipment. They said you cannot do this for intangible assets. So that wiped the option completely away for crypto. But the question became, okay, that's effective 2018 and after. What about all the stuff we've been doing for the past several years? And so the IRS issued guidance, I want to say it was in 2020, maybe. It was a couple of years later, they issued guidance. And the IRS being about five years behind on their analysis and guidance, they compared Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Those were the big three that they decided to compare. And when they did a comparison with all of them, they found there were similarities, but they noted that the use case, not only how it's proposed, but how the coins get utilized in um, practice is different. So they weren't similar enough to be this light kind thing that you're just swapping it. So on both counts, one, going forward, it just got nixed. And then trying to look backwards to 2018, before that, they said, no, these tokens are all just different enough that we're not going to allow it to be light kind which they've always kind of had a narrow view on that. They did the same thing on like silver and gold. They said are not like kind because they're used differently enough that they won't let you swap one for the other and it not be taxable. Do you think that's permanent or do you think there's any new proposals change that? Nothing soon. And I don't even know that there's going to be proposals. What I could see happening is that, and I had this in a webinar I did recently where someone said, well, what about tokens that are holding real estate, like you've got this tokenization of assets. And I'm like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. But right now, the regulations either are undefined or just don't allow for that. So I could kind of see, especially with NFTs that are... I'll talk about play to earn games a lot, where you have NFTs where one is a hatchet that you only get a certain number of swings and then it breaks away. You could have a sword that never deteriorates. You could have a piece of land. You can have a building. And if they were real-world assets, those things would all be taxed differently. But right now, they're still all lumped into this idea of intangible assets. So what I think is going to happen with all this stuff is just a lot of lawsuits over the next decade or two, where people try to make these claims that say, look, the IRS is saying it's this, but look at what it's holding or look at how it's being used and trying to get sort of that leeway that doesn't currently exist. So basically what you're saying is, 
the government's too damn slow to take action, and therefore we're going to need case law or lawsuits to actually set the precedent probably over the next five to 10 years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing that now where there was that Jarrett case with the couple who was staking Tezos tokens. Yeah. And everyone freaked out on that case because the IRS offered them a settlement. And everyone's like, oh, this establishes precedent. You're staking token income. That's not taxable. Well, it was a settlement offer. That's not precedent setting, even if the couple had taken it. But the IRS in that case is very clearly just trying to kick the can down the road. Because the IRS is much happier enforcing legislation that Congress passed versus trying to come up with their own interpretation, they get challenged in court, and then they possibly get struck down and they're proven wrong. So Congress isn't moving super fast, and the IRS is as much as they can is just trying to wait on Congress instead of instituting their own guidance. So what this couple is doing with this lawsuit is what I think a lot of people are going to do is they're going to have to sue the IRS to get this guidance because neither the IRS nor Congress are super forthcoming with any sort of guidance. So let's go into the, why we're on staking, right? And also hard forks. I mean, how do you see that from a tax standpoint and how are you treating it? So right now we're just, we're treating it all as, as taxable income upon receipt. There's a term in there that becomes a really big deal. It's called having dominion and control, or sometimes they call it domain and control, to where if you get airdropped a token, or I guess if you have staking income, but you don't have full and unrestricted utility of that token, well, it's not taxable when you receive it then. It's taxable when you have that full unrestricted access and ability to use it. So right now, for most staking income for most airdrops, that means it's you have that utility when it's received. There's some instances where you don't. But that's the way we're treating it right now because we base our interpretation of staking income on the existing guidance for hard forks and airdrops. And that's what the IRS has said on those is that when you have upon receipt and dominion and control, that's when you need to count as income. So that's what we're doing right now. But that Jarrett case is going to that's going to be a really interesting case in a lot of ways because it's going to give us some clarity and the principles that get established there are going to affect a lot of other types of crypto. Got it. And so for the airdrops and the staking, so you're going to be paying that ordinary rate, correct? Short-term capital gain rate? Yeah, just your ordinary income tax rate. All right. And then that'll be marked at the price in which it was set in your wallet on that date. When you go to sell it again, it's going to be either short or long-term capital gains depending on the date. Yeah, depending on the date, it'll be sort of long-term capital gains. And your cost basis is whatever income you had to claim on that staking or airdrop. That's going to be your initial cost basis. So that's the current treatment on it. What the Jarrett's are trying to claim is that this is the creation of a new asset and thereby it should not be taxable until you dispose of it, which would be... I think they're arguing that the best way they possibly could. They're framing it the best way possible. Whether or not they're successful will be kind of interesting. The thing that was really interesting to me, and no one really talked about because everyone just freaked out about the settlement offer, but in the IRS's response a couple months earlier, one of the things that was really interesting in it is that the couple in, I think it was paragraph 30, they quoted the IRS guidance on an FAQ saying, 
for federal tax purposes, cryptocurrency is property. So you just expect when the IRS is responding, saying, saying, yeah, we agree, you're basically <laughs> quoting what we said. But the IRS, in their interrogatories, they said, the IRS denies that for in all instances, cryptocurrency is property. So you can see from the IRS that and a few other things in the response that the IRS is setting it up that they're treating it like dividends or interest income. You're not really creating a new asset. You're just getting a reward for staking. That's the way they're trying to frame it. And in practice, that's definitely the way it feels. It doesn't feel like you're out there with a hammer and a chisel. So that's the way the IRS is trying to look at it. The Jarrett's are looking at it a little more with a futuristic slant to their perspective. So, Well, do you think the problem is that they classified this as property and then therefore everyone is looking you know, across the, all the different things like real estate, if you subdivide and split it, you still don't have no capital gain until you exit the property, right? And if you have a cow, you have a baby, so, and you don't get a gain until you sell it. I think what they're running into is that the IRS issued this guidance. And I think there's an SEC chair in 2018 who also said that Ethereum was, was property. And I think that's true in those instances. But what we're seeing is crypto constantly expanding. So we're seeing all these different use cases. We're seeing all these different approaches, not only to what they're holding, but the way the individual companies operate to where there are some instances where these are pretty clearly unregistered securities. There are instances where these things are nothing but a tokenized security and other instances where they're absolutely an asset and that they're property. And I think it's just they are underfunded and they're under-supported to where you're seeing this huge global like revolution in this technology and they don't have the resources to keep up. And now that these things are expanding, now that you are seeing sort of these unregistered securities and all these different use cases, their comments from five years ago, when they basically had three tokens to deal with, are coming back to bite them because people are trying to use that as precedent for all crypto projects. That hit on a few things, right? Because obviously in the news over the last day, right, the Senate's approving this Inflation Reduction Act, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where they look like they're going to ramp up, I think, a portion of the IRS and allocate resources there. 80 billion, I think. And so do you think this is going to have an impact? Do you think they'll put that to the, you know, obviously to the best use in, in this area to resolve some of these things? Hopefully, it's going to depend on exactly how it gets whittled down. And there's some stat that for every dollar of funding the IRS gets, there's like, $5 of revenue that gets brought in with lost tax dollars. So I certainly hope that they move it towards that. Or at the very least, that Congress starts just... The IRS litigating all these things is so time-consuming and difficult. They'd much rather just do what Congress tells them to do. So they could get away with less funding if they would just have clear instructions as to what the rules are, and then they're out there just enforcing it versus trying to interpret it. Let's roll into, obviously, we hit on staking, airdrops and everything. I mean, when it comes to the basics of everything in the uh, metaverse, right? We have these different NFTs and like you mentioned, in-game items. Can you kind of break down what people should expect in to pay in taxes and how it's going to be you know, allocated? Yeah, so we always start with what the activity is. So if you are basically a dealer, for lack of a better term, like you're just there as a trader, that's going to be taxed one way. 
if you're out there and you're the person creating the NFTs and you're the, you're creating these new pieces of art, that's taxed a certain way. And then if you're an investor, it kind of depends on, okay, is this an in-game NFT? Is this a profile picture NFT? So first we kind of start with what's the activity and what is your role in it? And then we kind of flow through from there as to what exactly the tax treatment will be. So should we break down dealer first real quick? I mean, obviously no one ever talks about being a dealer in crypto. I never hear about that. Yeah, it's not. I mean, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of... But the basic way we'd look at it is like, all right, so if you're selling, if you've got an antique that Granny left you, and you've got just some general assets that you're then selling at a yard sale on eBay or something, you've just got regular capital gains then. Because that's just you selling a piece of property. But if you run a shop downtown and hang up a sign that that's what you do is you trade in antiques, well, then the sale of those assets is your business is the sale of antiques. So that's business income, not capital gains. So in some instances, I don't think anyone's really uh, classified themselves this way. But sometimes people should be classified as a business if they're crazy high volume, especially something like NFTs where there's this lack of fungibility. And it's more based on the, the rarity of the asset versus if you're selling a bunch of tokens, you've got a, a liquid market that you can sell them to anybody at any time. So first, it would be your role in it. The other thing that we look at is what is the type of NFT? It's probably a good place to move to even if we backtrack. So what a lot of people will, will say is that NFTs, they're still thinking about the profile picture NFTs. So they'll say, okay, if you sell an NFT, that's a collectible. And for a lot of NFTs, that's going to be correct. Because like I just said, you're doing it based on the rarity of the NFT. You're doing it based on the sort of scarcity principle. And so with that, that's what collectibles are. And collectibles are taxed at, their own, at a different tax rate. Long-term capital gains, you can are taxed anywhere from zero to 20%. Collectibles are taxed at the lesser of your ordinary short-term capital gains rate or 28%, whichever one is less. You know, if you've got a, a board ape, a mutant ape, a punk, or something like that, those don't really provide any utility aside from being able to say, hey, look at this cool rare thing that I have. So those absolutely are collectibles where we don't have as much guidance or any guidance, because even the, even the thing on collectibles, that's people guessing that based on analogous things within the world of art. Not like we have IRS guidance for that. So we have some guidance from those art NFTs. But when you get into utility NFTs, like, like the metaverse, if you have it to where you've got play-to-earn games, even... There's some Discord groups where to join the group, you need to own the NFT. It's almost like you're paying for a membership by owning the NFT. Those things, there's, they have to be taxed differently, but we don't have clear guidance on exactly how they're going to be taxed. So you're basically saying is where most people are probably perceiving all these NFTs as, we'll call it collectibles, right? Yeah. Are you saying that maybe depending on the utility, it might actually be more like a membership and that would be taxed and interpreted differently than a collectible? Yeah. I mean, and, and again, we're, we're stepping a little bit out on a limb here because this isn't based on IRS guidance, but 
at least not IRS guidance as it relates to NFTs and crypto. But there has to be, because if you're doing a collectible, the assumption is that it's not going to go down in value. It's just going to keep appreciating in value, that it's going to last indefinitely. But I'm a member of one, one NFT group and my membership, the NFT, it says 21 to 2022. At the end of 2022, I have to buy the next NFT or I get kicked out of the group. So that has a very finite, beneficial and useful life to it that has to be treated differently because here in five months, it's useless. It has no value anymore. And the value it held was this length of the membership term that it was giving me access to this group. So I think we're going to see stuff like, like those memberships. We're going to see it with gaming NFTs. We're going to see it with all these things that NFTs are sort of either granting access to or representing that they're going to look at and say, look, this is, this is just different. The house that I bought in the metaverse is not the same thing as this pair of sneakers that I bought on Stefan. They're different things with different use cases. So I think that's part of why we're going to end up with so much litigation over the next decade. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> so, you know, almost as if it's a utility for membership and, you know, for some reason it's used as business purposes, you might have a deduction in that year. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And again, the IRS hasn't specified this, but there's what they call when you're amortizing intangible assets, which is basically the same as depreciating a tangible asset, a yeah. house you depreciate, an intangible you amortize. I think in a case of a membership, you're under that section 197 is the section of the code that you amortize it under. It's the lesser of 15 years or the useful life of the asset. So I think that's another thing where we're going to have a lot of debate. Like one, should, should you be allowed to amortize these things at all? Or do you just need to hold on to them? And then if you sell them for $0, then you take the loss. That's one thing that's going to be litigated. And then even if the IRS does concede that you can amortize it, they're going to say, okay, but it needs to be over 15 years or a, a much longer useful life. And the users are going to say, this thing's only useful to me for two years. So I think that's where we're going to see just this huge amount of debate and differences of, of opinion that the courts are going to need to tired out. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this, right? I'm obviously going all over the place and I'm thinking you guys obviously probably do this tax work, right? Yeah. For your clients. So if I want to become a client, is that something you guys do all the tax work for me on all this NFT stuff? Do you guys also back that in case I get any letters? Can you kind of break that down what you guys also do in that aspect? We do the planning aspect and we'll do, do the tax return. So anything that we're putting our stamp on, we'll, we'll stand behind. The one thing we don't do at this point, it's just too arduous, is doing sort of the lack of a better term, crypto bookkeeping. We could do it, but the price we would have to charge is so, it's so time intensive. The price we'd have to charge would be so exorbitant. There's no way I could look at a client with a straight face and tell them that's a good use of their, their money. We'll get the client, we'll either outsource it to a VA or they'll do it themselves in Coinly, Cointrack or what, one of those apps, yep. then give us the report. We'll do the tax return. And then a big part of what we do is planning throughout the year to make sure that one, that they're setting aside the right amount for taxes, but also just that we're 
optimizing things in terms of the correct structure, the timing of when they execute transactions, just everything we can to mitigate that tax bill. Because we picked up a lot of clients here in 2022 who weren't clients in 2021. And given what a bull, the, just the market cycle we ran into with this big bull run and then everything crashing, we have some people with six-figure tax bills with no way to pay it because they weren't doing tax planning throughout the year, which is just an absolute nightmare for everybody. Break that down simply for our listeners because they may not be aware of that, but obviously you might occasionally see this across Twitter where people talk about this large tax bill and can't afford it when it comes to springtime. So what would happen? Walk us through that. Yeah. So I mean, last year, last year is a really good example of it. So you just have things are just going nuts. The market keeps going up and up and up. And then here in early 2022, the market crashes down and it's sort of recovering now, but cra- crashed down even worse here a, cu- a couple months ago. The IRS, when you're doing your taxes, they're just looking at each year in isolation. You can't. You used to be able, able to average out your income over multiple years. They got rid of that a lo- long time ago. So all they're looking at is what did you do in 2021? So we have people who were making... It's one thing if you're just... You bought Bitcoin and you're not... If you're just totaling and you're not doing any trading, you're not going to end up with taxable events unless until you actually execute a trade. So if you're not, if you're not trading, you're fine. But we have people who have nodes, staking income, play to earn games, interest on their deposits... Um, or they're just actively doing coin for coin trading. And all of those are taxable in real time as you do the event. So you have all these people who had great years in 2021, who had realized income of six, seven, eight figures, but they didn't cash out for any fiat or even a stable coin. One client had it was a play to earn game that they're making a bunch of their money and they kept reinvesting in the NFTs for the game. Well, the game's token dropped 99%. So, what will happen is let's say you make a million dollars or something in 2021. Depending on other sources of income and exactly how you did it, you could have three to 500 grand worth of an income tax bill pretty easily. That's fine if you were taking some of those profits and setting them aside in your bank account for your tax bill. What people end up doing is not cashing out and reinvesting in some way back into the crypto market, be it into NFTs or just even like safe bets like ETH or Bitcoin or something. And then the IRS says, okay, cool. You had a great 2021. Thanks so much. Give us our $300,000. But your portfolio now is worth 30% of what it was the last year. Yep. Unless you then liquidate your portfolio at this huge loss, you don't have the cash to pay, pay this tax bill. That's one of the things when we've had any pain in getting people converted from prospects to clients, that's been the biggest hindrance for us right now is not the people who don't want to pay it for what they have now. It's they're looking and saying, well, geez, I'd love to use you, but I have a 400K tax bill and a $200,000 portfolio. I don't have the money to pay for anything right now. It's a very real thing that we're seeing a lot given this sort of boom-bust cycle that we were just experienced. As you approach the end of the year, right? And you, you may be aware that you have a high tax bill coming. You know, What are people's options when it comes to maybe harvesting losses and why it would be great to do that? Yeah. If you have a traditional security, 
you've got Apple stock or something, and you're way underwater on it, you've lost money. If you sell that stock, even at a loss, but then you rebuy it within 30 days, that's what's called a wash sale, where the IRS is saying, okay, cool, you sold this asset, but we're going to put sort of air quotes on that, that you sold it, because then the next day you bought it back. So that's not really you disposing of the asset. That's you just executing a trade purely for the tax benefit. But again, right now at least, crypto is not considered a security. So with that, it's not subject to these wash sale rules. So one of the best things people can do, especially if you had trades you're executing in, in 2021, where now you're almost, almost guaranteed to be underwater, is to sell those execute trades to sell all that off, that will generate a realized capital loss. And then you can immediately purchase it back. And crypto is not subject to that 30-day limitation. So you're able to take those losses on your tax return. So either you had a bunch of realized capital gains in the current year that were able to offset those against, or it gets carried forward to a future year and when the market recovers and you're trading for profit, you've got these built-up losses that you can use to offset against it. Now, I guess it does get kind of a lot more muddled when we think about uh, like XRP or some of these ones that uh, SEC recently said might be securities, because then it kind of gets in that area where you know you might not be able to do that tax harvesting. Is that what you're kind of saying too? It's like, well, I think what's going to XRP. I'm not sh- sure what's going to happen with that individual litigation. I think what will happen versus it being like a, if they change the regulation, it's going to be this more sweeping thing. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to be based on, at least now, these individual tokens. I think that there's going to be clear guidance. There's going to be something in legislation that says crypto is subject to wash sale rules and all of it is. I think it's what they're going to try to do, at least. They proposed an amendment to that in 2021 and it didn't go anywhere so they can always do things retroactive they do it all the time with tax code where it'll be we'll be in the middle of tax season and they realize they let something lapse that they didn't mean to then retroactive to the beginning of the previous year they reinstitute some deduction or credit so it's always possible that they do it for 2022 it seems more likely that it would be 2023 or, or later, but we, you never know for sure. All right, well, while we're on the uh, tax losses, right? And obviously, the markets kind of blew up in the last six months. And some of the listeners might have been invested in Celsius Network or a couple of these other platforms. And they're worried about whether or not they're going to get their money back. And if they don't get 100% of their money back, what can they do from a tax standpoint? Yeah, so right, the hard part, we wrote a, an article about this. So maybe a month ago. The hard part right now is that you can only take... The way that you write these off is it's this non-business bad debts is the category that you typically write it off in. You can't write those off until it's final how much you lost. So while even though Voyager and Celsius both declared bankruptcy, so you know you're going to lose something, exactly how much you're going to recover, if anything, is really up in the air. So for now, where people are kind of posed is that until it's those bankruptcy proceedings get further along and you know how much you're you're going to get back, we're not able to write off those losses from these insolvent exchanges. Once that is known, then you basically put in whatever your sale price being whatever little piddly amount that you, you got back from the bankruptcy 
and your cost basis is going to be whatever your actual cost basis was for your purchase price and any associated fees. So unfortunately, they're going to have to wait. And I had, thankfully, I didn't have a ton on it, but I had a little bit on Celsius and a little bit more on Voyager. Everyone's got something, I feel like. More people more people than not, I think, have something in one, on one of the platforms. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thankfully, I didn't have a ton on either. And I've got most of my stuff spread out. And I got a lot of stuff off exchanges after those, <laughs> those two happened. But yeah, I think we're, we're all kind of in that, that same boat. But right now, unfortunately, it's sort of a wait and see type thing. Awesome. All right. Well, when it also you know comes to tracking all this, right? Do you have any favorite tax software? I mean, I personally have put a little portfolio test portfolio into three different platforms and got three different answers. Yeah. <laughs> Just to test it. And so what is your thoughts and maybe for the listeners, what they should look at? You need to use something. I'll tell people, unless you're just in, unless you basically do this full time and you're just very disciplined, you're going to miss something if you're trying to do it all in an Excel spreadsheet or, or something on your own. So I always recommend using one of the softwares. That being said, most of them still do feel like they're in beta testing a little bit, where they're just they're just not quite quite there. Which one I like largely depends on what sort of activity you're doing. Or a big one is the volume of transactions. Because so far, people Coinly and Coin Tracker are the two that people come back to me and say, hey, this was easier to use. The numbers made more sense. They they feel good with those. But if you're doing some really high frequency trading, the pricing on those is volume based. And if you've got some bot that's doing a thousand trades a day or something, you're going to run into a $10,000 bill for their pricing. So for really high volume traders, the one that we've had good, pretty good success with in terms of accuracy and it being reasonable pricing is called cointracking.info. And that one I think ends up being like, for really high volume traders, like 400 bucks or something versus 4,000 with coin tracker. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I've been using that one for years. So that's been around a while. I will tell people a lot of times that in those reports they give you end up being a starting point. <laughs> they get, they get you 90% of the way there. And then we sort of still have to redline through some of it because they won't capture cost basis or we'll think something's a trade when it's not a trade. Um, and for those making multiple trades, I found it best to, depending on your frequency, either monthly, quarterly, whatever, twice a year, but to go in and do your own re reconciliation on a certain periodic basis, just like you would mm -hmm. QuickBooks. So this way you don't have to go back at the end of the year for transactions you did a year ago and you're looking through all these different wallets. I found that to be very helpful. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you can keep up with it anywhere close to real time, <laughs> you're going to be so much better off, not only just it not being this huge amount of work you have to do, but it's going to be more accurate because you it's closer to when you actually did it and you remember what what was going on. Because it, it's like like QuickBooks or bookkeeping. If you're looking at a charge you made a year ago, you're not going to remember the context of that. You're not going to know what you were doing or where you moved it to. So it's just a lot. It's much easier if you can do it closer to when the activity happened. All right. I mean, is there anything that we should hit on that we didn't cover today that you would like to touch base on? The two things I think that we're mentioning to, to most people. One is we're always talking about cashing out profits at, as you go, like the, the clients we talked about who didn't do that. So now they've got these underwater portfolios. 
one of the warnings that we do have for people with that is like is that people want to keep it in stable coins, which I understand because with a stable coin you can get ten percent interest and it stays a dollar. So who doesn't love that? But we've seen two different examples of just validating that stable coins are not cash. So if it's something you really need the money for, like paying your taxes, anything you can't afford to lose, you don't want to keep in stable coins. Because we saw two totally different things. We saw Terra Luna collapse and Anchor Protocol was paying you 20% on your UST. So that, that was great. But that token collapsed. So you had people who lost all their money because of that. But even if you... Let's say you've got USDC, which right now seems to be the most transparent and stable of the stable coins. Let's say you had it all in USDC, but you had it on Voyager or Celsius. You're in the same boat. So that's one of the things we're, we're telling people with all this is just if you need the money for tax purposes, I know you won't get as much. You, you're going to get 1% instead of 10%, but you really want to have that in actual cash if you need the money. Or 1% of a FDIC insured bank account could be a lot greater than 10% of a Celsius right. or something like that that goes to zero. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's one of the things. And then um, one of the other sort of bear market opportunities we're hitting on with a lot of our clients right now is that depending on your other sources of income, both in crypto and outside of crypto, but this might actually be the year to accelerate your income and take the tax hit now versus pushing it down the road. And the example we'll give on this is probably not the best example because it's sort of specific to this one project. We'll talk about Gala Games nodes and some other sort of L2 type nodes are similar to this. That Gala Games, the way they're, they're moving to their own chain. But right now, if you have a node, you're not getting the token, you're not getting the Gala token to the Ethereum blockchain. You're getting basically a voucher in your treasure chest that then you can convert to a token. And the way we understand it right now, at least, is that that means that you don't have that dominion and control until you mint the token. So with that, the taxable mint does not happen until you mint the token. So typically, you're trying to defer your taxable events as far as you can. Why do I want to pay tax sooner rather than later? But there's a couple reasons why, and this is what I'm doing with my gal. I've got a few nodes. This is what I'm doing with mine. I'm, I'm mincing them now because gala is five to six cents right now. Last year, it got up to 50 cents. So I'm already making less money in crypto this year anyway. It's a down year where my income is lower. I'm minting the token and taking the tax hit when at five, five cents. So if you have a hundred thousand tokens that you're minting, it's five thousand dollars of income instead of fifty thousand dollars of income when it was fifty cents. And the other reason is that your holding period for capital gains purposes starts when you mint the tokens. So that also, if I'm planning on selling it, if I do it now, then I've got a higher chance of qualifying for long-term capital gains. And we did a we did an article outlining this as well. And we did a scenario where two guys had their gala tokens and they sold them, they had a million tokens and they sold them for 60 cents a piece. But one guy minted at 50 cents and then sold a month later at 60 cents. Another guy minted at five cents and sold over a year later. 
And the first guy ended up paying double what the second guy did because of the bucket of income it fell into and these long-term capital gains rates. So that's that example is kind of it's the best one to illustrate what we're talking about because it's very clear clear to outline it. It it is kind of specific to Gala, but there are other opportunities out there depending on the mechanics of the chain where you've got some more you've got control over when you take the tax hit, even just if you're doing trading activity and you've got and you have gains somehow in this market, it might make sense to go ahead and get those gains, take the hit now, because it'll save you down the road. But like it's kind of situation specific. So you got to plan with your CPA on those, unfortunately. <laughs> it's always pay the CPA some money, right? And then they'll help you plan yeah. out things. Is that right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> pay to play, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate everything you've shared today. You know, for everyone listening, why don't you uh, share with them how they can reach you or learn more about your services, whatever that may be. Yeah. So if they go to CryptoTaxCPA.com, that's the best way to reach out to us. We also have a book that we just published a week ago. It's called Decrypting Crypto Taxes. And it's got a guide on all this stuff. The ebook version is free on Amazon right now. So they can get that for no cost if they're interested. Great. I appreciate that, Micah. It was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you, man. This was a blast. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, man. The Joe Roberts Show.